I have to say, it's hard, it's hard to believe that this is my last Sunday in this role. Four months since Easter. Yeah, it's a long time, but um, it has been a, a tremendous blessing to Sue and to me. We have, we've loved being a part of this congregation in this way. You know, we certainly have been in and out of this place for a, a number of years now um, in various ministry roles and things like that. Um, but as I told the, the congregation this morning, don't expect us to just go running away at this point. You know, when you spend four months and you have as much invested like this, I think we're probably going to hang around for a while. So I don't think you're going to get rid of us. So, um, But as I said, too, you know, we have a lot invested in the gospel of Mark, and I kind of want to see how the story ends, right? Um, so at least I said to Stuart uh, last week or something, I said, you know, I'd kind of like to at least see the book through and, um, you know, see how this thing comes through. And so... Um, yeah, so it'll be, it'll be great. We are continuing our, our study in Mark's gospel. We are coming into the seventh chapter now, so we're making some pretty good headway along the way. You know, there are some messages that I think uh, should come with a warning. This is one of those messages that comes with a warning. Um, we see Jesus and the Pharisees in a bit of a different light from what we have seen to this point. And to be honest, I said this morning to the, to the congregation, I wish this wasn't my last message. This is not a great passage to end on. Um, because if I begin to sound a little cranky somewhere along the way, it's because Jesus is getting pretty heated up with the Pharisees, and he calls them names. It's sanctified, but it's, you know, he, he calls it as he, as he sees it, and um, he sees it pretty accurately. So it's, it's a pretty confronting passage. So I'm going to let you in on the confrontation that I've been dealing with all week long as I've been looking at this, and so we can share this together. But, um, but there is an invitation in this for us, and we want, to, we want to acknowledge that and to receive the invitation that is, that is before us. So as we open this word, let's, um, let's open our hearts to the Lord and um, prepare ourselves to receive what he has for us. Father, indeed, we do thank you for your word. There are parts that are wonderful and we rest in them and they are delightful and encouraging, and there are parts that are confronting, and there are parts that cause us to really look deep in ourselves and force us to really take account of the, the state of our heart. And this is one of those passages and so we pray for the ministry of your spirit to probe into those places that we would like to keep hidden, to reveal what needs to come into the light. The spirit, guide us into truth and help us to open to you, to hear your voice and to follow where you lead. Give us ears to hear hearts to receive, 
and encouraged to respond, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When Sue and I lived in Los Angeles a number of years ago, one of the most popular radio stations in the city was one of those stations that, that featured call-in talk radio programs. You probably are very... Do we have that here in Melbourne? I don't know. Do we have that? That's great. Uh, we used to love to listen to it. I, I just... It, fascinating, you know, all those topics, whether it's sports or cooking or you name it. There was, it seemed like there was a talk radio program that would, that would be there for you, no matter what your interest was or, or anything like that. And one of the most popular at that time was, uh, the host was a man by the name of Dr. David Viscott. I remember listening to him often. Interesting, interesting man. He was a psychiatrist who would take phone calls and listen to your problems and, you know, ask all the right questions and, and draw things out of you. And, and then he would give some kind of a quick diagnosis and then prescribe some kind of advice about how you should handle that particular situation. In a few years, he became one of the most famous names in all of America in, in this whole field of counseling and psychotherapy and, and, and all of this. He had an office in one of the wealthiest suburbs in Los Angeles, and he charged well over $1,000 per session. Every time you walked in his office, you just at least $1,000 Every single, every single session, people would flock to him for his advice about how to save your marriage, how to, how to get along with your kids, how to find fulfillment in your work, how to be free from the destructive power of drug and alcohol abuse, all these different things. Any, any challenge in life, he was, he was your, your go-to guy. And for many people... Dr. David Viscott had the answer to all of their problems. At the height of his career, we were all shocked to read one day of his very, very sudden and untimely death. And shortly thereafter, a story ran in the L.A. Times titled, The David Viscott You Never Knew. And in that article, the truth of his life came out. His life was a tragic series of broken relationships, family estrangement, and absolute misery. He and his second wife were separated. He hadn't talked with his daughter in years because she married a man that he didn't approve of, had never met his grandchildren, he was bankrupt despite an income of well over a million dollars a year. In the end, the article said he turned out to be a fraud. Many suspected that his death, officially listed as heart failure, was actually a suicide. And in the aftermath of his death, all the truth of his life came out. 
what he portrayed to the public could not have been more different from the man that he was in private. To be honest, such a life makes me both very, very sad and very angry at the same time. It makes me sad because obviously here is a man who is broken and hurting and living with such deep, deep pain himself. And yet he found no solution even in the very wisdom of his own profession, which I think not only casts doubt on him, but, but on his profession, or at least the way he practiced it. Imagine being one of his patients and thinking, is the advice he gave me sound? Would it work? And it makes me angry, too, because here is a man of tremendous influence who led so many people down this same path of brokenness and despair that he was living in. In his own day, Jesus encountered similar types of people who not only dispensed advice, but they set the standard for how everybody else should live. These people made the rules, and they expected everyone to comply with the rules that they set. But unlike Dr. David Viscott, they appealed to a much higher source than medical science. They were the religious leaders of the day who claimed to represent God's own law. They, they claimed to speak with God's voice and to dispense God's judgment. And Jesus has some very, very strong words of rebuke for these people. Mark chapter 7, let's read this beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart? but his stomach, and is expelled. And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Confronting words. Jesus doesn't mess around, does he? I have two points. Obviously, this passage breaks into two, two sections here. We have seen in many times already in the Gospel of Mark how there is a theme that is running, that, is, that Mark is really developing in this Gospel, and it has to do with the heart. And this, this passage really brings that out. In fact, did you notice how many times even just that word is mentioned as we read through this? How many times Jesus talks about the heart, the, the hypocrisy, the hypocritical heart and, and what defiles the heart and so on and so forth. And he's making a point here. So let's look at these, these two parts. The first begins, obviously, with this confrontation with, with the Pharisees. They come to Jesus with an accusation, which looks like an accusation against the disciples, doesn't it? As we read that, it looks like they're just being critical of, of the disciples. But, but we have to understand that there's something much, much deeper than that. It's, it's more than a criticism of the disciples. Look at, look at verse 2. They, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, hands that were, that were unwashed, and then notice verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but, but eat with defiled hands? Why do they do this? What, what, is, what is happening here? 
These men are not being critical of the disciples. It is a way of actually criticizing Jesus and suggesting you are not training your disciples well. You, you, you are raising up a group of people who are rebelling against the, the traditions of the elders. If you want to criticize a teacher sometimes, what you do is you go after the students and say, your students aren't learning very well, and what you're actually saying is, you're not teaching them properly. That's exactly what what these people are doing, is they're criticizing Jesus because he is not training his disciples according to the tradition of the elders. But notice their criticism because there is something there's something here for us to pay attention to this criticism of this washing of hands this tradition of the elders isn't that interesting what have we seen Jesus doing up to this point in the gospel we have seen Jesus preaching about the kingdom we have seen Jesus healing people we have seen Jesus who is he is giving people hope like they've never had before we're we're seeing lives changed and lives transformed and and thousands of people coming to Jesus and he is ministering to them in ways that they have never been ministered to before and they come with this criticism about well you're not washing your hands right You know, one of the things that I have observed over more than three decades of ministry is the legalist is always a petty, petty person. There is a pettiness in their criticism that completely rejects and ignores these tremendous things that God is obviously doing in their midst. And they, they can't even see that. They refuse to see that. But they get so sidetracked with these petty, stupid little criticisms. Ignoring these greater things that God is doing and defining faith in such narrow, silly little ways, washing hands. And there was a certain ritual that they would go through and the way they would wash their hands. And yes, it's crazy. I heard somebody say, that's crazy. It is crazy. You know, I think we need to learn from this. We need to, we need to be cautious ourselves when our forms and our traditions become so much more important than the substance that, that we hold on to. When we get so caught up with, with certain ways of doing things, are we singing the right songs? Are we doing them in the right way? Well, pay attention. What is the bigger thing that God wants to do in our midst? Or are we distracted by washing hands or not washing hands or how we do it. So they come with this petty criticism, this very narrow-minded view of things. But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't even address their criticism. 
He doesn't even talk about the washings. He doesn't even talk about, about their criticism of the disciples. He doesn't go into any of that. He confronts them directly, and he goes right to the very heart of the issue, literally. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. You hypocrites. And he takes them to Isaiah, one of the greatest and one of the, really one of the most confronting of all the prophets, and he exposes the true condition of their hearts. He refuses to deal with these superficial actions and this, this petty little question that they bring to him, but he goes straight to the heart, to the motive behind those actions, they want to quibble about washing hands and going through religious motions. And Jesus has absolutely no time for that. His concern, as always, is about the condition of the heart. And so he quotes a verse from Isaiah. But I want us to go for a moment into the context of this. It's a very important passage Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29. You know, there are some passages that, you can, that you, can, you can hear a part of, and instantly you know the whole passage, don't you? If I recite the first line of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, well, you instantly know the whole psalm, don't you? Whether you can quote it word for word, maybe, maybe not, but you know the whole thing. You can... You can you can recite certain passages simply by hearing a part of it. And I think that's exactly what, what, what happens here. Jesus quotes a part of the passage, but there's so much more to it. Look at Isaiah 29, beginning at verse 13. This is the, past, the, the verse that Jesus quotes, but we're going to go a little bit further. The Lord said, "'Because this people draw near with their mouth.'" And honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Surely these teachers of the Scriptures would have known these verses. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. He is saying to them, this passage is talking about you. They are people who look so good on the outside who, as he says, honor God with their lips, 
who go through the, the motions of religious respectability, but whose hearts are completely untouched. They are far from, from him. And so look at the warning that comes as a result. He says, your wisdom, your, your wisdom will perish. Your discernment is going to be hidden. Your influence is done. You will no longer be influential. You will no longer have a voice with these people. You will no longer be able to, to be leaders and to guide them. He is, he is giving them a very strong indictment, but he's not done. He says, he says, also, you think you can hide this from the Lord. Look at verse 15. You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, your deeds are in the dark, and you say, who sees us? We have kept this hidden. You even congratulate yourselves at succeeding, and you, you think you get away with all of this stuff and that, that nobody will know, and nobody will ever find out about all of these things, just like Dr. David Viscott. I can live this double life, but at some point, the truth comes out. Eventually, the truth is exposed. And then he says, and you even think you can be the judge of God. You think that you can be like the clay telling the potter what to do. You think you can be like this thing that has formed and say, my creator has no understanding. He doesn't, he doesn't get me. You look at this and you think, no wonder Jesus is so offended by their question. They are judging him. They are coming to him as God's judge and saying, just as the clay says to the potter, you didn't make me. And they're judging Jesus. Such a picture of these men bringing an accusation against Jesus, and, and so Jesus brings his own accusation against them. They appeal to the tradition of their elders, but Jesus appeals straight to the heart of God. They go back into their traditions, and Jesus, Jesus goes straight straight to the top. He goes to God. This example that Jesus, we're back in, in Mark chapter 7, this example that Jesus gives here from their own tradition says that a person could set aside a portion of their wealth for or certain parts of their, their assets. They could declare something is, is dedicated to God. It's, it's sort of like saying, you know, I have this bank account. Whatever is in this bank account, my, my savings, my superannuation, whatever that is. I could say, this is dedicated to God. 
But the interesting thing about the tradition is it didn't actually become, it wasn't actually given over often until after my death. And I could still use it. I could still draw on that. It's like having a bank account and saying, this bank account is dedicated to God, and after I die, then it goes to him. But I can still use it during, during my lifetime. It's sort of like having a trust fund so that after you die, all your money goes to the church or it goes to a particular charity or something like that. And so they would declare, this is Corbin or it is given to God. And Jesus says, you do that when your parents, your mother and father, are your responsibility. You see, this is a time when there weren't things like superannuation and pensions and things like that. A parent's parent's pension was having children who provided for them in their old age and cared for them and, and looked after them and took care of them. And they would set this money aside, use it themselves, and say to their parents, no, no, this is, this is set apart for God. I, I can't help you. This is dedicated to God. I can't help you. It would often put even their own parents in a destitute position because of the dishonor of their children in not fulfilling their responsibility of caring for their parents. Jesus uses this example to expose the greed of their hearts. It wasn't really a matter of giving it to God. It it exposed a heart of deception to the point that they would use their man-made religious tradition to justify their own neglect and even their own abuse of of their parents. And then he adds at the end, and many such things you do. You know, I can think of few things more abhorrent than abusing or mistreating another person in the name of God. This fake holiness of the Pharisees is a flimsy veneer over a heart of deceit and pride and even abuse of these people. It it grieves me to think of the many atrocities that have been committed over the years by people in the name of God. People in ministry who abuse their authority for their own advantage. Pascal made the observation that men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. And Jesus calls it out for what it is. He calls it hypocrisy. No wonder Jesus in other places calls them blind guides who lead people into a pit of destruction. Going back to Isaiah, we are reminded that God knows it all. God sees it all. We think we can keep it hidden, but it does not escape him. And I find in that reality both a comfort and a caution 
It is a comfort to know that he comes to me and he understands when my heart is broken and when my heart is confused. He knows the condition of my heart. And you know, Isaiah is the same prophet who also says these words, Come and let us reason together. And even though your sins are as scarlet, even though you are a hypocrite, I can make you as white as snow. And Isaiah also offers that invitation to bring that heart to God and let him change it, let him touch it. And he offers healing, he offers wholeness, he offers restoration. But there's also a caution in here. The caution when I think I can keep that heart hidden from God. Every one of us has a hidden heart, don't we? The question is, what do I do with that heart? Do I delude myself into thinking that I can keep it hidden, that nobody will find out, that God will never find out, or do I I offer it to him with the prayer that he will purify it, that he will change it, that he will soften it, that he will fill it with himself? So Jesus takes this lesson a step further in the second part of this passage. He says, listen to me, all of you who understand. There's nothing outside of a person. Obviously, washing hands, that's outside of a person, isn't it? There's nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him. But what are the things, but the things that come out of a person, well, that's, that's what defiles us. His words take me back to Proverbs 4.23. Remember Proverbs 4.23? Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart. Pay attention to your heart because everything flows out of the heart. It is the spring of life. Everything flows out of out of the heart. And you see, these religious leaders are so concerned about all these externals of religious respectability, but Jesus says, those things are not the problem. The things you eat, that's not the problem. Whether you're washing your hands or not washing your hands, that's not the problem. The things on the outside are not the problem. He says, Verse 21, from within, out of the heart, come all of these things. The actions of the Pharisees really only expose what is going on inside of them. The actions of my life display to the world, for good or for ill, what is really happening inside of me, in the core of me. You see, Jesus is always going to move us beyond the appearances, beyond the the outward look of things, and he is always going to push us into the condition of the heart. What is going on in the heart? 
And that's why he says in the Sermon on the Mount that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees are only concerned about how people look on the outside. And Jesus says, you're you're, you're like a grave with flowers on on the headstone, but you're just full of rotting, stinking bones. You wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy, dirty. He wants to get us away from just thinking about behavior to what's the heart behind it. Look at this, this list that Jesus gives here in verses 21 and 22. For from within, out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's quite a list. He could go on and on, I'm I'm sure. But do you notice in every single one of these things that he includes, every single one of these is relational. Every single one of these involves another person. Each one of these vices harms another person, every single one of them. Some of these things describe evil thoughts toward another person or about another person. Some of them describe evil actions or abuses of another person. It tells me something very important that my sin is not only my sin. It isn't just my personal business. And how often do people say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. It's just my sin. No, my sin is not just my personal business. It hurts other people. It affects other people. It is not just between me and God. It is also between me and other people. Sexual sin, as he lists here a number in a number of ways, often reduces people simply to an object of selfish personal fulfillment. Theft, envy, coveting would, would take something of yours and make it mine, abusing other people. All of these things. But behind all of this, Jesus' words offer to us this warning. Guard your heart. Take a look inside your heart. We don't don't see this, this, this same kind of attitude of Jesus in this part of the passage that we see in the first part. No, he's he's so much more patient. He is he is addressing them. Tenderly, he is addressing them with love. He is addressing them in grace, trying to help them to understand. There's no name-calling in this part. It's It's just loving, teaching, and pointing them in the right direction. So Jesus offers us this warning, guard your heart. What do your thoughts, what do your actions say about the condition of your heart? What do they expose about what is going on in your your heart? 
I love this simple statement by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, this righteousness is not a duty owed, but a perfect and truly personal communion with God. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into here, this this truly personal communion with God. That's what he's been doing all through the the gospel of Mark, is is opening this, this relationship with God to people who, to this point, these Pharisees would have excluded and said, no, you, you can't come. This is, this is not for you. And Jesus is just opening the kingdom to these people. Clearly, the answer to a, a broken and dirty heart is not simply dressing up the outside. Don't just make it look better. And you know what else? I've realized I can't clean it up myself. Only God can do that. I think Jesus' words invite us. No, they do more than invite us. They compel us to look at the state of our own heart. He calls out the hypocritical hearts of the Pharisees. He calls them for what they, what they are. And he wants to shine his light of truth into each of our hearts. He, he wants to expose those places that, that need to be healed. He wants to, to show us the places that are wounded, that need his, his loving care. He wants to come in grace to cleanse, to heal, to restore. One of the things I love about Jesus, and how many times I've experienced this, is when he exposes this, when he brings it out, he does it in a context of love and grace. And he sits with me in it. He comes as a judge when we ignore, when we reject. But when we come, like the disciples, and they ask him, teach us, show us, help us, well, then he comes and he gently, lovingly, in grace, exposes that heart and helps us to see. The reality is I can't change my heart myself and neither can you. That's God's work. But what can we do? Open my heart. Give him my heart. Stop hiding my heart. Stop hiding it from myself. God already knows it bring it to him. What comes out of a person, what comes out of the heart of man, that's what defiles you. So Jesus says, give me your heart and I'll clean it up. Let's uh, take a few moments for prayer and reflection. This is one of those passages, I think, that compels us 
to really probe into those places. And in that quiet place, simply ask the Spirit of God, show me my heart. What is it that you want me to bring before you? Is it the heart of a hypocrite? Or is it truly an open, receptive heart? I encourage you, don't leave this place tonight without doing that business with God. And there will be people here who will want to pray with you and talk with you and help you in that journey. We don't do it alone. We, we do this together. Father, this is a confronting passage. It's not an easy one to preach, and it's not an easy one to listen to, but it is absolutely necessary for every single one of us. Father, I pray that you would help us to truly open our hearts to you. to allow you into those places that we think we can hide from you. And I pray in this room that you would heal broken hearts, that you would purify dirty hearts, that you would calm anxious hearts, And our greatest prayer is that you would make our heart look like the heart of Jesus. Help us, Father, to open to you and to walk with you with clean hands and a pure heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.